Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Vikram Gandhi. Vikram Gandhi is a professor at Harvard Business School, where he co-pioneered their sustainable investing course. Vikram Gandhi is a founding partner at Asha Ventures, an Indian impact-focused investment fund, and he's also a senior advisor to the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. He's also the chairman of the board of Growth for Good Acquisition Corp, a sustainability SPAC. Prior to his teaching and investing endeavors, Vikram Gandhi was a global investment banking executive for 25 years. So welcome, Professor. How's it going in uh, Massachusetts? Oh, thank you, Jonas. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, Yeah, it's going good. You know, the semester's just got over. There was graduation at Harvard last Thursday. And so after a busy, uh, busy teaching schedule, we just finished all my grading of all my courses. I teach sustainable investing in one or two other classes as well, as you mentioned. So finished all the grades just two days ago. So feeling a bit of relief. Oh, it's a perfect time to have a podcast interview with you. Yes, I guess that's why it's been scheduled. Yeah, so thank you very much for being on this podcast. While preparing for this interview, I went through your LinkedIn profile, which is quite impressive. You spent 25 years in investment banking. And then what motivated you to switch on to social impact and sustainable investing? What was the light bulb moment? I'm not sure it was a light bulb moment that happened, you know, just one day, but maybe it was a light bulb process, if you will, like a slow kind of burn. And essentially what it was that I'd spent 25 years in investment banking, as you said, I was very happy with my career, I've enjoyed what I did, but just felt that at at some point one has to, and you know, I was in my 50s at the time, has to think about what you do with all this both education and business experience in kind of making a difference. And it wasn't just about making a difference in the context of going and doing a nonprofit work or foundation work, which obviously is extremely important. I do have a foundation as well. But really to take my business skills, you know, I've been an advisor to large companies on capital raising, mergers, acquisitions, to asset managers, done a lot of investing myself, is that how to take those experiences and apply them to solve important problems and do that in the context of private capital. So what I mean by that was, or how this epiphany came about, was that, you know, government spending and Philanthropic spending, while both are extremely important, are just not enough to address a lot of the societal issues we have. And so therefore, what is the way that one could co-opt private capital to obviously generate, and this is not about woke capitalism or making stupid investments or anything like that, but it's just about like how do we actually create infrastructures and systems for private capital to invest in areas which will generate the, the risk-adjusted return that is required for that capital because it is private capital, it's fiduciary capital, but at the same time can be intentional about making a difference on important issues. And so this was in 2012, 13, that I started thinking about these things, you know, impact investing and sustainability was kind of talked about, but it was really a very peripheral, marginal thing. And climate risks were also just talked about, but again, a reasonably marginal thing. So I felt at that time it was probably good to kind of step away from my investment banking career and really focus on what I thought would be important issues and which have turned out to be 
pretty important issues where we still are, you know, have a lot of ways to go in terms of addressing those problems. One of the channels where you sought to focus on those important issues was by returning back to your alma mater, Harvard Business School, and creating the sustainable investment courses. So could you walk us through that process of how that took place? Yeah. So when I actually left investment banking, I basically put, you know, some of my own capital, pretty reasonable part of my net worth into actually impact investing. And again, this was not charity. I, I set up Asha Ventures, like you said, and did a few other investments globally. But with the clear intention of generating a market rate return and having impact at the same time. And it was an experiment. So it was, okay, well, I, I don't know whether you can actually do this or not, but let's see if you can. And I was doing that at the same time as you said, Harvard Business School is my alma mater. I graduated from there in 1989 with my MBA. My daughter was at HBS at, at the Harvard Business School in 2013 to 15. So I would, in addition to having visited for various alumni meetings, et cetera, go and visit her on and off. And one of those trips, you know, I was just talking to a bunch of the faculty, including the dean. You know, there is this whole issue of sustainability. There's the issue of climate. You know, we are a business school. And I was asking them really in the capacity of an alumni and a parent more than anything else. Like, you know, what is the business school doing about this? Are there cases about this? Are there courses about this? And yeah, I mean, they said, yes, we've got a little bit. We're starting to think about it, but there was really no course, et cetera. And, you know, one thing led to the other. And I felt that if my broader mission here was, you know, how to kind of figure out how to bring private capital to solve these issues and generate the return that's required, you know, wouldn't it be a terrific way in addition to doing it myself or advising fund managers doing it, wouldn't it be great to actually students at a leading business school who could then, you know, the multiplier impact of actually doing that can be pretty huge, you know? So that's how it kind of came about. And I said, well, I'm, I mean, I'd never had great aspirations to teach or anything, but I don't think for me, just my style is just lecturing is not a thing, but as you know, at HBS, everything is case studies, et cetera. And so I felt, well, that would be pretty interesting if we could actually develop a whole new course. And HBS was extremely supportive of that. I had never done it before, like teaching or writing a case. So I teamed up with one of the finance professors there, Sean Cole. And then jointly, we developed this course. It took about a year and a half, two years. We wrote nearly 25 new case studies because, again, you have to write cases for the course. And we've just finished teaching it for the sixth time this, this last semester. So that's really how, how it came about. It took about two years to develop, and then we taught it for the first time, 17, 18, and then we teach it every year. It's an elective in the second year of the MBA program. Well, amazing. And I was looking at, I think your work not only has an impact at Harvard Business School, but also has an impact at Harvard Business School. I think I saw University of Chicago, they implemented some of your case studies. And I would love to now jump into some of the case studies that you cover in your course. So let's start off with investment banking, since that was your primary career. You have two interesting case studies on Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Goldman takes an approach where they acquire a firm, whereas Morgan Stanley does a lot of internal changes. So what's your thought process behind those two case studies? Yeah. So again, as we maybe just talk a minute in terms of how we constructed the course, we said, well, which are the different areas that we need to focus on to make a robust course. And then, so we looked at the different asset classes. So there's public markets. So we have a bunch of cases on that. There's private markets. So we have cases on venture capital and private equity. There's impact measurement and management because I think the difference, at least in the, in the commercial world, the difference really is that you're making an investment. So I always tell my students, first of all, that you know when we talk about sustainable investing or impact investing, 
don't forget the word that the word investing is in that statement. So you really got to be a good investor. And then the impact kind of, you know, you sit there and measure it. And so there's how do we measure impact and manage it? And then what are the ecosystems that need to happen to really kind of move the ball forward? And it was really in the context of the ecosystem discussions that we felt that some of the biggest intermediaries of capital are the investment banks, right? They, on the one side, are have investors, and the other side, they have clients who are needing capital, and their role is to be in the middle to kind of match the investment desires with the, you know, the capital providers, with the capital users. And their, what would be their role in actually mobilizing capital to solve important things like climate finance? And so that's how I'm, you know, obviously I've been a Morgan Stanley from there. And so therefore I had good connects there to write a case. I had good leads into Goldman Sachs as well. And so the, the, the broader objective was like, how are two large global investment banks, you know, mobilizing their client dialogues, educating their own employees, providing product opportunities, so creating new products? What are all the different parts of the value chain which they're implementing to you know, address these issues of, of sustainable investing. And, you know, Morgan Stanley had an approach which was, we're not going to go and buy something, we're just going to sit there, we're going to educate, if you look at our different businesses, we're going to talk to our investment bankers, we're going to talk to our asset managers, as well as our private wealth relationship managers, as to how they can really have active dialogues with their clients on this. So it was really a building kind of a capability within the, within the firm. Goldman Sachs, too, did some of that, but then they had an opportunity to buy a company called Imprint Capital. Now, these cases are a little dated. I mean, things have changed a lot. These cases were written nearly five years ago. So it, I'm just giving it to you in that context. I think both those firms have come a long way in how they address these issues now. But at that time, it was, okay, let's buy a capability, which was really buying a team of people who are basically capable and had been doing this for a long period of time and then implanting it within Goldman Sachs to have dialogues with their clients. But ultimately, the goal for both was pretty much similar, which is that the clients were starting to talk about these issues. They wanted to advise them and give them good advice. There was a lot of requirements on the part of capital in terms of companies looking to address climate issues and looking for capital investors, growth in private equity and venture capital around that. So that was the genesis of those two cases where, you know, in the last year or two, we've not taught those two cases largely because they've got a little dated. So the way the case study method works is, you know, cases are meant to be current. There's some cases that work forever, but in sustainable investing, as you know, you know, things are changing every three, six months. And so we are constantly writing new cases, updating cases. So I think in those two, in those two situations, we'll be writing more updates going forward. So next uh, we move on to private equity. There were two interesting case studies, one on generation investment management, which was a firm set up to focus solely on sustainability. And then the next one is TPG, which is a pre-existing private equity firm, which moved into sustainability and impact investing. What was your thought process behind those two? So let me take the second one first, because actually generation is less in private equity there. They have now a private equity firm, but they really were more in public markets. So we can talk about them in the context of public markets. But TPG, but I started looking at this in 2012, 13. They were impact funds. In fact, even Asha Ventures is an impact fund. And they will impact a lot of most of the impact funds, even 75, 80% of them, even at that time. While whenever you say impact, people think it's some sort of concessionary capital. It is not the case, or at least that's not the intent. But all the funds were really small. It was like 30 million, 40 million, which again, it's important, but it wasn't necessarily moving the needle. Again, if you zoom out and think about the bigger picture, which is solving important societal issues, 
or using the UN Sustainable Goals as a basis for that. And so TPG was the first firm that actually a mainstream kind of large global private equity firm that actually launched an impact fund, which is, you know, which was called TPG Rise. So the case was really about their first investment in a company called Everfi, which is a, is a SaaS kind of software company. And they produce content to help reduce alcohol addiction, sexual harassment, improve financial literacy at colleges, universities, and other workplace. And so there's a huge potential impact, underlying impact of that. So they were the first fund to do it. And you know their investors are institutional investors. They're not doing this for any great social... I mean, impact is important to them, but they need to generate the return because of their fiduciary obligations. So this is the first time that a fund did or was looking to do impact investing at scale. I mean, they, they started raising nearly a billion dollar fund, but it ended up it being a $2 billion fund. Again, this was in 2017, 18. And the purpose of that case was to really think, focus on, you know, how do you actually create a new large scale impact? And we still teach that case, by the way, because that's an important case large-scale impact investing fund, but then also how do you measure impact? The, the key focus of that particular case was TPG along with, they, they formed a, a firm called Y Analytics, which is a nonprofit firm, to really kind of establish, you know, how to measure impact. Because that's always and still is a big issue where, you know, you can measure financial returns like ROEs, IRRs, ROAs, margins, growth, and you can compare those. But how you measure impact, how you think about that, how you compare it across investments is still work in process. I think it'll made a lot of progress. But they had come up with this very neat mechanism called the impact multiple of money, where they essentially just like you take your financial projections and try and create, you know, what is my return. In the same way, they, they look at investments and say, how do we create a return or, or calculate a return, a social return? So an impact return. So the impact multiple of money was that if I invest one, what is the multiple of impact that I have? And if it crosses a certain threshold, then I'll make the investment. So that case was about that. You know, from two billion, they've now, I think, if I get my stats right, they're nearly at 17 billion today, including a massive climate finance fund. So Rise Climate is a huge fund that they've launched since a lot of your focus on these podcasts on climate, which is really looking at climate solutions around the world. And so we had the process, perhaps, of refreshing our case, but really focusing on, on climate impact issues. So, I, uh, so that was a very cool case where, you know, there's a f- looking at a large firm, thinking about impact. And as a result of what they did, quite a few other large private equity firms started following suit and creating impact funds. The other side of the spectrum was Generation, which you mentioned. They really were a public market investor. I mean, they were set up in 2004, way before any sustainability or anything else was talked about. And their real focus was that in the long term, if we are a long-term investor, which is what they were, it was set up by a person called David Blood, who was the head of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and Al Gore, the ex-vice president of the U.S., and has now grown into over a $30, $35 billion platform. But their focus was to really invest in companies that they think are sustainable long-term in the public markets. That's how they started. Now they have a private equity arm as well. And there too, we, we really focus that case that we have right now is, a, is an investment they made in Deere, the agricultural equipment company, where they initially made the investment because Deere was improving agricultural yields, what was great for farmers, better for food production, et cetera. And then the case talks about how at the current time, they're re-evaluating that investment because 
of the potential negative emissions that come from agriculture and is deer really assisting in that or I mean deforestation etc not that deer sells kind of equipment to deforestation companies or initiatives but investing in a agri- agricultural equipment company given the agricultural concerns that we have around emissions and deforestation is that a long term sustainable strategy or not so the case really talks about you had an investment which was highly sustainable at one point and generated good returns but then you have to keep on evaluating how investments are doing both from a financial standpoint and a sustainability standpoint and generation still is a very a very important player in this field they're a big thought leader they've provided a lot of financing and support for various institutions to improve Im- impact measurement techniques to look at co2 emission calculations they're very committed to this whole area so therefore having a case on them for our class and for our students is very important if we stay on the public markets track here there are two more interesting case studies one is on uh, state street global advisors with the first uh, gender diversity etf back in 2015 so uh, back in the old days and the, the second one is on blackrock so could you delve into that please yeah so again i think those are public markets opportunities as you rightly fully said jonas and so you know their objective of the state street case was twofold one was to you know gender apart from climate gender is a big issue you know for moving the needle on societal issues and so investing in companies that are more progressive on that front again a lot of academic research has suggested that investing in companies or companies that are have more diversity at the board level or senior management level gender and other forms of diversity actually end up with better investment decisions and so you know from that perspective it was important that we have a case on that to kind of have that discussion around and so state street again was an important kind of component to that and the, the etf that we talk about in that called she still trades on the new york stock exchange the other goal of there was again this is an investing class i mean it's a, it's it's a finance class we do a lot of numbers we do a lot of analysis a lot of debates and discussions in the class whether this an investment makes sense from a financial standpoint so you know there was the etfs as given that passive investing is becoming such a huge component of the overall public markets a goal of that case was really and it still is like what is an etf how is it constructed what are the kind of components that go into that so that that was really about that issue and then on blackrock again well blackrock like state street is a very very large passive player this one was about a more active strategy so you know impact originally and even now is still to some extent associated with the private markets that if you own something you can have more of an influence another side of that was the blackrock story which is like in investing in medium sized or even middle you know medium to small companies publicly traded that there potentially is huge impact opportunities there because you can engage with management in a big meaningful way as well as that a lot of times companies when you don't look at it from a sustainability lens people companies may be undervalued and there may be a lot of upside so that was less about you know making a difference but it was more about like is this better investing again one la- one last point i'll make on this which is that whether it be public markets or private the key question with people comes to mind is well can you do both which is generate the return and have impact and i would say that the companies that have been successful at this and have done it at scale is really finding investments which impact is inbuilt in the business model so what i mean by that is if i take the the example of deer which i've said in the generation thing the more equipment they sell at least when the initial investment was made 
the more better agricultural practices you have and therefore you know the better it is for food production and you know farmer income and etc the same you know in a lot of other investments like in the everfi tpg case you know the more software you sell and penetrate in universities and high schools and and companies and more software you sell the more impact you have in terms of potentially reducing alcohol abuse sexual harassment and improving financial literacy so there it's inbuilt in the model that the more you sell of the product the more money you make and the more impact you have and so that's those are the kind of companies that you think about but what's different in all these cases is that the company making the investment or the investor making the investment is intentional about doing its diligence from an impact as well as a financial standpoint initially and then once the investment is made having metrics just like you have financial metrics having impact metrics which are then tracked and management's are held accountable for it and you know the success or failure of an investment is not just purely driven by the financial return but also by the social return and we found to your other point you know you said about case studies being used at university of chicago and others you know hbs case studies are used extensively i mean we are globally and so i've i've seen that our case studies are now used in various european universities and quite quite a few universities around the US. Congratulations for that. I'd like to move on to engagement and activism. I find this a very fascinating topic and you have three interesting case studies. Two of them are hedge funds. One is Engine number no. 1 which had a very interesting proxy fight with ExxonMobil. The other one is Jana Partners which was an established firm that set up an impact fund. And then the last one which I think is let's say my favorite out of the three is California Public School Teachers Pension Plan which tackles a very important issue regarding gun violence. So I think maybe in all those three the common link actually is Calsters the California Teachers Pension Plan like you the one you referred to there again they are the second largest pension plan in the US second largest one in California and for them again they they have a fiduciary obligation to you know generate i think their target return is 7% per year on average over a long period of time but they also have from their perspective as the way they think about it and a lot of asset owners think about it there's another very big distinction which we make in our class is the dif- difference between an asset owner and an asset manager so all the cases that you just mentioned engine 1 jana partners and the third one galstas did directly those are asset managers the actual biggest investors alongside those asset managers are asset owners like calsters and the motivation for calsters is that they're a long-term pension plan right so they when they talk about a quarter you know they're talking about 25 years you know they're not talking about 90 days and so if they don't factor in important things like climate risk societal risk good governance into their investment process they probably may not be making the best investment decisions and so for them actually a lot of these societal issues and capital allocation decisions are actually really important the common thread is that calsters was the big pension plan behind engine 1 i i think personally that engine 1 would not have been successful if calsters had not been there calsters was in partnership with jana partners is when they jointly wrote a letter to apple which is what the focus of that particular case was so they as an asset owner say like long term there are a lot of risks in this world and i as an investor have to kind of make sure that you know i'm being pretty aggressive on managing those risks so let's take one by one real quick so engine one you know basically felt that exxon was well a very fine company and one of the leaders in the business and one of the best technologies in the business you know was really focusing on capital allocation decisions which were not factoring in that over a long period of time there is a climate issue 
it was the first time that a small fund, but again, they would not have been successful had not been backed by Calstos and a few other large pension plans, and then ultimately the three big passive investment managers. It had not been done before where actually a fund like this could nominate directors and got the management team. The, the management team supported directors did not get elected, at least three, three of them. And so that was a big, big thing. I don't think it'll happen too much late going forward for the simple reason that a lot of companies saw that and started becoming a lot more proactive in dealing with issues that shareholders would be concerned about. But ultimately, the, the intent was to do that. And so therefore, it was a good thing that happened. But it's also interesting that you know, maybe in the longer term, it plays out. I, I think literally Exxon just had its, its annual shareholder meeting just two days ago. I guess this is a recorded podcast, but Right now, we have two days from when we are speaking. Go and essentially a lot of the ESG-oriented proposals did not get a lot of votes because they went too far, I think, a little too, little too extreme in their kind of asks, I think, anyway. And, and part of it is also the macro thing that, look, oil and gas is here to stay for a while. It's not going to go away. I, I'm a big believer in that. I think it's just got to be done in a gradual, thoughtful manner. But ultimately, capital allocation decisions have to be pushed to sensible long-term areas. And that's what I think the shareholders have been pushing Exxon to do. But right now, given what's been happening in the war in Ukraine, the general demand supply imbalances, the expected growth in the economy a year from now, that oil and gas drilling is, is still important. And so ha having that balance between the two is another part of the class. I mean, I, I want to make clear that this class is not about saying, oh, sustainable investing Everyone has to stop doing things what they were doing, and everyone has to change overnight. No, it's we, we try to make this a finance class, which is just saying, look, on a practical standpoint, if you have a 20, 20 30 year time horizon, there are decisions that need to be made now because of the implications that come on later. So I think that's the discussion there. You know, Jana partner similarly very quickly was ultimately Apple phones. I mean, the whole thesis there was that while you know iPhones have done a fantastic thing for this world. In creating efficiency and connectivity, et cetera, they also have the negative consequence of, of, of addiction. And therefore, what should a company like Apple be doing about it? So they wrote a letter to Apple. I mean, in the big scheme of things, even if you own a few billion dollars of Apple, you're still a small, very small percentage shareholder. And that's what they were, a very small shareholder. But they wrote a letter. Apple did not necessarily communicate with them or engage with them. But just six months after that letter, Apple put out kind of a, a default setting in their phone where, or not necessarily a default setting, but a highlighted setting where parents could control the amount of time spent by a child's iPhone on different social media. And parents could track it and then therefore shut it off after an hour or whatever time period they decided was the right time period for their child. So again, now whether you could say that this happened because of that letter and that push and the more publicity they got, or they would have done it anyway, I don't know. But this was not a big technology fix. It was kind of easy to do, but it hadn't been done. And so one could construe that this letter was a decent catalyst to actually make that happen. And so that would be another point of engagement that ultimately, and why does that matter? Because in the long term, you're producing a product that is addictive, regardless of all the benefits that that product creates. You know, your license to operate in society, if you're creating an addictive product, actually diminishes over time. And therefore, that's a really important risk in a business long term and therefore should be addressed in a proactive manner. And the same thing is on gun control, right? I mean, 
again, that one, the California pension plan is uh, CalSTRS is very much, you know, in California, a lot of gun shootings, school shootings, which were obviously devastating. And because it's a teacher's pension plan, it's even more like straight, very, very hits at home, hits home, if you will. It was a really important issue agenda for them and their board. And so they engaged with both the gun manufacturers as well as with equally importantly, the gun distributors, like the large sports distributors and even large firms like Walmart, et cetera, Dick Sporting Goods, to really kind of think about like, you know, to create awareness and also just make sure that point of sale checks, which is already the law, were actually done in a proper manner. And so they created, along with a lot of other investors, you know, the principles of of firearm control in in the private firearm industry have been engaging since then. In these engagements, the big challenge in all those three examples I gave you, the big challenge is, was the engagement a success or not? How do you gauge that? Do you know whether your engagement strategy is successful? Engagement strategies, by definition, don't happen overnight or the results don't show up overnight. It, engagement means you engage over a period of time and then try to determine what the causality of that engagement was and whether, like for example, did Apple put out that parental control system because of the letter or they would have done it anyway? I don't know. You know, would Dick's Sporting Goods have actually curtailed the, spare, the sale of firearms or Walmarts without this push from Calsters? I don't know. You know, Exxon has now talked a lot about like we are going to be focusing on carbon capture. We think that long term going to be as much opportunity for us in carbon cap- capture and sequestering technologies and opportunities as there will be in oil drilling. Now, would they have said that anyway, or did they say that because now they've got a few board members and Engine One and the, and the presidents that said? I don't know, but I think it's important that ultimately, and that's why I started this point with asset owners versus asset managers. For asset owners that have a 25-plus year time horizon, engagement and engaging with companies is a critical part of their investment process. And so therefore, educating students or having them discuss and debate these issues is important from our perspective. Now we've discussed asset managers, asset owners. I would like now to move on to, let's say, the corporations, the corporate managers. And you had two interesting case studies. One is on Ford Motor Company issuing a green bond, and the other is Total Energies with their corporate venture arm. So let's take the Total Ventures arm first because it's more like from an investor perspective. So one of the, the big areas is, and we want to make sure we covered that in our in our course, is corporate venture capital. So in fact, all the large energy companies, so Total is just like Exxon, is another large energy company, is one of the big five in the world. And they have set up these corporate venture capital arms whose goal is to go and invest in companies potentially that disrupt the main business. Right. And so we want to make sure that in our course, maybe, and this is a much more recent case that happened in the last year, a year or two, was to actually talk about what, what is corporate venture capital? How is it structured? Why is it different than typical venture capital? Because 100% of the money is coming from the parent company. The incentive systems for management team may be different, the investing team. And then what is the objective, right? I mean, in a typical venture capital arm firm, it's like you make the best risk adjusted returns over time. Or if it's an impact arm, you have the best risk-adjusted returns over time with impact. But in this case of a corporate venture capital arm, the goals could be not just returns, but a strategic goal, which you know could be in conflict with the returns goal. So that was one broad area here, because I think it's important that students understand that. I mean, corporate venture capital is actually the biggest in the tech industry and the pharma industry you know, over time. 
And the second was to really look at a specific investment. So that case is about is Total investing in a hydrogen truck manufacturer called Aizen. And the idea there was that, you know, hydrogen for large transportation like trucks over the period of time could be a very good and important alternative to carbon-based fuel. You know, investing in that company would give them a lot more exposure, understand how that works, but then also test it out by converting some of their gas stations all around France and put hydrogen kind of filling stations there in addition to the typical gas filling and diesel filling stations. So that was the goal of that. And so, you know, the idea really there was that there's a strategic goal here as well as there's a financial goal. Then at some point, the company wanted the, the corporate venture capital wanted to settle their investment with the strategic, you know, the department that had, you know, would benefit from this in terms of having this technology there. Would they be willing to sell it or not? And therefore, how, how do you manage these potential conflicts was kind of the goal there. But the idea for, for Total was to really get exposure to hydrogen and hydrogen kind of transportation systems, which would then feed into their distribution network. So that, that was that. And then the other piece, so when I talked about like stepping back in the course, you know, while most of these, all of them, in fact, that I've talked about till now have all been around equity investing, whether it be public markets, venture capital, or private equity. You know, the fixed income markets obviously are huge, even bigger than the private equity market. So the Ford case was written from that perspective that really he helping students understand what is a green bond, why do companies issue green bonds or sustainably linked bonds, you know, who invests in these bonds, what are their investment criteria, and then how does a company like Ford, which could issue any regular bond, why do they issue a green bond? You know, so this Morgan Stanley is one of the key relationships that came through them, and so we had talk to Ford. And, and so the goal of that particular case was that, look, the green bond market has been growing dramatically. The sustainability linked market has been growing dramatically. There's more and more demand there, both from an investor and an issuer standpoint. But still, you know, it's maybe two, three trillion dollars for a fixed income market that's over a hundred trillion. It's really a bucket, you know, small drop in the ocean. So the idea there was like, okay, well, what's holding it back? Where does the industry go? So two, two goals there. One is what is a green bond? How do you structure it? Who buys? Who sells? Et cetera. And the second was, you know, how do we actually bring more fixed income capital into the areas of climate finance at, at scale, uh, but still having them generate the risk-adjusted return that they require? Professor Vikram, I've really enjoyed this interview so far. I'm really impressed with all the case studies that you've written, but now I would like to move this interview into uh, your investment uh, engagement. So there, there are two main ones. There's Asha Impact Ventures and there's Growth for Good Acquisition Corp. I, I'd like to know how and why you set up these investment structures. So I think for me, you know, doing my investing and it was even before I started teaching. So we focused on the teaching part, but that's one aspect. But for me, actually investing in these areas and both for, from a financial perspective as well as an impact perspective is really important and interesting. And it's also important for me that do not just like talk about it in a hypothetical sense or, you know, like a paper or a case, but actually do it myself, because I think that's important. You always have to, in my view anyway, you know, be a practitioner in addition to being an academic. From, so if I took the two, they're quite different. So Asha Impact is, you know, I grew up in India. I'm from there. If you think about the UN sustainable goals of the 17 sustainable goals, they all, all those problems exist in India at scale. And quite honestly, if 
if india does not move the needle on those 17 issues the globe the world will not reach the system was that you know you're from mauritius you know all the coastline issues and all that which come not just in mauritius but in the indian coastline i mean it's just so many cities out there which could go under water if not if proper care is not taken so it, for me it was okay well how can i then channel private capital to generate returns but impact at the same time so asha ventures i set that up i did it with my own money it was reasonably successful we had good exits and really good financial exits and impact exits then i got a bunch of family offices involved it was very successful doing that and now even now i've got a fund so it's gone from a, like a single family office multiple family office to a fund and the goal i mean the objective there is very simple which is the investment criteria if you will it's venture capital it's series a or series b so not just total startups but one stage later where there's some business model there's some revenues but they need scale up capital and the companies we invest in are targeting consumers so it's typically b2c companies targeting consumers who are earning between 3 and 8000 a year so this is not the poorest of the poor i think there is very hard to make business models around it that's where government and financial spending comes in but it's one level above that where there is massive opportunity in a place like india i mean there are nearly 3 400 million people who fall in that income bracket they're completely underserved they've got increasing aspiration so we've got companies in financial inclusion like low end mortgages loans insurance so in the whole financial inclusion so if you're using fintech and technology to kind of make that happen we've got investments in healthcare again healthtech edtech so things which are important in that area have high impact but which that community is completely underserved so that's united is based in india all the investments are in india there was also an opportunity a couple of years ago where like what are we what's happening in the us i know big you know there was this was the time when spacs were very very hot if you will spacs have gone through a pretty rough time here in the last year where like can we raise a pool of capital and then and that's why it's called growth for good which is that the idea was to raise a pool of capital and invest in in companies that are focused on important societal issues but again with financial return so climate being an important part of that we've just announced well middle of march nearly yeah 6 weeks ago an acquisition by the growth i mean that's what it's set up for it's a, it's an acquisition corp a company called zero nox i can't i can't talk much about the deal itself because it's in the sec registration but but zero nox i mean it's it's available it's a website etc which is a company that basically makes power trains electric power trains for off off highway vehicles so for construction equipment agricultural equipment mining anything that's not a highway kind of vehicle they make the key ev infrastructure for those for those entities and for for the original equipment manufacturer so we've announced that deal it's an sec registration right now and there again the focus is that this capital is going to be used to scale up that company over a period of time as they develop and then you know the ceo of aspac she's very well highly experienced in the whole area of climate energy transition so she and another the president of g will join the board of this company so there is not just about providing capital but then providing intellectual capital to actually grow grow the company and the grow the business so those were two and then i think the third one is the whole area of blended finance so that falls into the category of concessional finance i mean i think public private partnerships are critical especially in the area of climate and so how do we use different blended finance structures where philanthropic capital government capital other forms of capital can can 
stimulate or provide, a, a, be a catalyst for bringing in private capital at scale. So, you know, whether it be things like career bonds, social impact bonds, guarantees, pay for performance contracts, there are a whole bunch of different things. And so I'm also taking quite a bit of lead in that area. Before we move on to the closing questions, which is the advice to the listeners, I'd like to jump into and listen to your thoughts about India. You mentioned I'm from Mauritius, but I'm also of Indian origin, and I'm always trying to learn more about India. I saw that you were at one point helping out the Ministry of Finance. You also just completed a teaching module with Harvard Business School in India, and you've also written some interesting case studies regarding doing business in New Delhi and microfinance in India, which has a climate tech component, especially with they have loan products related to solar lights and water purifiers. And also, I saw you had some interesting stuff, joint ventures in India, which could be relevant to climate tech. But overall, your thoughts about India? Yeah, so I think, you know, in India right now is at a stage where, you know, it's whatever the fifth or fourth, fifth largest economy in the world. And now it just became a few months ago, the most populous economy in the world, country in the world. And, and you know, and it's, it's reached a stage where if you look at history, when countries reach this stage, they really seem to take off. And so it's right now at, you know, how much per dollar per capita of GDP. So like they're at 2300 right now, India is dollars per capita of GDP. So that's the time when a lot of other countries have taken off. I mean, I just came back from India a few weeks ago. I think the consumer drive, the aspirations, you know, are huge. And so I think the market is just ripe in the next 10 years, 10, 15 years for taking off. Now, India always will have its issues, et cetera. And, you know, it's a, it's a complicated democracy. And so all things don't move as smoothly and <laughs> clearly. But the, generally, the trend line is up and a lot of volatility around it. You know, that's part of the reason why I got involved with the Canadian pension plan. You know, we have a huge portfolio over there now. You know, it went from zero to, depending on the day, it could be anywhere between 15 to $20 billion across all asset classes. And, and you know, it's, it's an important part of what my advising to the Ministry of Finance at that time, which I don't necessarily do right now, but it was at the time, was around how to create structures on in attracting foreign direct investment. So I think that's an important piece. So it's like two barbells. So on the one side of the barbell is bringing in large pools of capital like pension plans to infrastructure, to real estate, to private equity, public markets, all the big asset classes. And the other side of the barbell is that there's a lot of stuff happening on the ground at you know, bottoms up kind of investing, which is what Asha Ventures is. I mean, they're the typical investment size is four to five million dollars per transaction. But it's like building out the entrepreneurial ecosystem. But having said that, India has the most poor people in the world. India has like got the most polluted cities in the world. It's got a coastline that has got huge risk associated with it. You know, as we've seen in the whole issue of the impact that climate will have on the poor populations is going to be disproportional. And therefore, in India, the, the impact is going to be hugely disproportional if nothing is done about it. And so I, I think there's tons to be done there but to be done there both from better spending in terms of philanthropic and government spending, but also really using private capital to harness a lot of these activities. So generally, I think the whole area of sustainable investing, dealing with climate issues, I'm actually developing a new course, which I'm going to offer this year, is called Developing While Decarbonizing India's Path to Net Zero, which is that, you know, unlike what's going on maybe in the US or Europe is, where climate is obviously a very important issue, the climate de decarbonizing and climate issues in the context of growth and development, where still you have two, three hundred million people living in poverty, if not more, 
is, you know, where there's energy poverty, there's all kinds of other poverty that you can't just like apply the formulas that are done elsewhere. And then the other question is who's going to pay for it? You know, the whole social injustice issues, or social justice issues rather, I would say. So I think that they're developing a whole new course on that because I think the actual opportunities for students and, and the risks associated with that and the policy issues associated are quite different than they perhaps are in the OECD. Yeah, I really like this title, Developing While Decarbonizing. And I'm really looking forward to your future case study publications on this. We're now reaching the near end of this interview and I really enjoyed it. I would like to hear your personal advice to the listeners. On one hand, they could be investors. On the other hand, they could be young professionals and students. So I think the mindset, even for me, when I was going up in my career, as well as as an investor to maybe five, 10 years ago, was that, look, you just have a mono kind of a, a mono track, like, you know, investors are focused on risk-adjusted returns. And if I look at students, if that's the other category listening here, is that very mono track is that I'm going to focus on my career and I'm going to focus on whatever is important to me from a career perspective or building up my family, et cetera. And I would just, my only advice is that you don't have to be thinking linear. It doesn't have to be either or that you're you know doing well and you can't be doing good at the same time. And that if you do well, then, then you, as I said, you can't be doing good. Or if you're doing good, you've got to sacrifice the doing well part. I mean, my experience in the last five, 10 years has been that that's not necessarily the case. You know, from an academic perspective, there's still more research to be done to completely prove that. So I can't necessarily prove it. I, in the public markets, we have been able to prove it. The private markets, still early days. But I do think that, you know, for all of you, I would just say that, look, there's lots of money to be made in terms of returns, but there's a lot of good that capital can do at the same time. And therefore, let's not miss that opportunity where you have to put that extra effort. You know, as it is, investing is difficult. Then on top of that, you put sustainable investing, it becomes that much more difficult. But at the same time, it's just so much more interesting and so much more satisfying that I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to kind of explore that area. And also from a career perspective for younger students, that as you are thinking about a career, you don't have to wait you know, 30 years from now and say, okay, once I'm reasonably successful in whatever I want to do, then I'll start thinking about how I make a difference. I think you can start doing that from day one without actually sacrificing anything from a career perspective. Thank you very much, Professor Vikram Gandhi. I really appreciate your thought leadership and your wisdom that you've shared with us today. Have a great day in Massachusetts. Thank you so much for having me and, and good luck with everything. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.